Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School at the ANU. And I'm joined once again by my fabulous co-host, Anna Greta Hunter, who is the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at ANU as well. Anna Greta, hi. Hi, Sharon. Great to see you again. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net right here at the Crawford School of Public Policy, which is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. So listeners, don't forget to check out the amazing range of degree programs and short courses that we have on offer, including, very relevant for the conversations we're having at the moment, the Indigenous and Development Policy Specialisation, which is part of a Master of Public Policy. You can check out what we've got on offer at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And welcome to this very special episode where we are delighted to have an incredible guest with us. Anna Greta, what are we talking today? Oh, thank you for that great introduction, Sharon. I think today we're going to talk about, again, about complex and interrelated challenges. And as many of us know, as we tackle these difficult questions that face uh, contemporary humanity, the challenges of the 21st century, we often find ourselves looking to history for guidance and learning. We examine events that are both contemporary and remote. We learn from thinkers and leaders and examples that can be thousands of years old. Australia is home to the oldest system of knowledge and civilization. With more than 60,000 years of history, the knowledge, understanding and systems of our First Nations people are extraordinary, and we're beginning to appreciate this as a nation. The colonisation of Australia more than 200 years ago occurred with quite a deep falsehood at its moral and legal core, that of terra nullis. This falsehood was ingrained over generations of colonisers and other migration, and it was magnified through policy interventions like the stolen children. Leaving our Indigenous population disposed and invisible in their own land. The need for truth-telling about Australia's Indigenous heritage and culture is recognised. Through the 1967 referendum, the Mabo and Wick High Court findings of native title, through the national apology, progress has been made on challenges that could have been addressed hundreds of years earlier. 
Yet today, we still measure the impact of colonisation through the gap in life expectancy, increasing incarceration and ingrained daily racism that is experienced by our Indigenous population. There is still much truth to tell, much reconciliation to achieve, and much balance to restore. Truth-telling is painful for both colonisers and colonised, and yet the opportunities for all Australians to benefit from the process are real, and the time for this is well overdue. Last week, we had an extraordinary discussion with Dr Virginia Marshall about country, the Indigenous relationship with land and its central importance to wellbeing. Today, we want to move beyond silos to talk about the wellbeing of all Australians and to ask whether it's possible to achieve that without a healing process of truth-telling that seeks to acknowledge our nation's history and bring genuine reconciliation. Thanks, Anna Greta. I, I was reflecting as you were talking for a moment on the series that we had last year on wellbeing. And perhaps the, the most powerful message for me that came out of that series was the importance of listening. And I think there are few people that it is more important to listen to than our guest today. We are honoured and delighted to welcome Patricia Anderson AO. Patricia, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Anna Greta. I think most of our listeners will know you, Pat, but let me fully introduce you. Patricia Anderson AO is an Alawari woman who has built a national and an international reputation as a powerful advocate for the health of Australia's First Peoples. With an extensive career spanning community development, policy formation and research ethics, Pat has dedicated her life to creating and nurturing understanding and compassion between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians. And this idea of compassion is also something that came um, out of the, the wellbeing series so powerfully. As a well-published writer, Pat has served as chair of multiple organisations, including the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance Northern Territory, and then the Prime Minister's Referendum Council. She is the inaugural patron of the Women's Safety Services of Central Australia and has presented to the United Nations Working Group on Indigenous Peoples. Pat co-authored that remarkable report, Little Children Are Sacred, which was the report into child abuse in the Northern Territory. She is the chair of the Lewitcher Institute and was co-chair of the Referendum Council that delivered that incredibly powerful and important document, the Uluru Statement from the Heart. She's also 2021's ACT Senior Australian of the Year. <laughs> Congratulations on that, Pam, but what a remarkable career. It is such a joy to have you here with us today. Uh, thank, thank you, Sharon. It's, it has been a, a very long career. I actually um, started work when I was 15. Uh, so I've been in the space um, a very long time. And Pat, it's some of that deep knowledge and experience that we want to have the chance to, to talk through with you today. And I wanted to start off by asking you sort of broadly about these issues of health and well-being that we've been so focused on um, in this pod over the past couple of months. And can we talk start by talking specifically about the health and the well-being of First Nations people? You have a long history of involvement in Aboriginal health and well-being. How do you describe the health and well-being of our Indigenous peoples at this point in time? Not good. 
I mean, we have the worst statistics, and Anna Greta went through briefly through some of them. Those statistics, the number might change, but we are still behind in every uh, marker, every uh, indicator that that's, that still happens. There are there to say that nothing's changed is not correct, of course. You know, but we still have um, the lowest. Well, in the Northern Territory, generally across the across the country, uh, education levels are still low. We still have the highest unemployment rates, and in the Northern Territory, where I come from, uh, uh, we have, I reckon, two generations who, in fact, can't read and write. And these are kids that have been in the system since they were sort of five. Now, if that was anywhere else in the world, I think there would be a national outcry. Uh, and those sorts, I think that's reflected too across across the nation, up the top, above the twenty sixth parallel, um, if you like. That is a different uh, different world and different set of circumstances. On the other hand, um, I mean, when I was was around, we had like in Alice Springs, for instance, we had a hundred percent increase in the number of Aboriginal kids who um, completed successfully completed Year Twelve, and the number was one. Um, so those were the kind of um, statistics when I was growing up. And now, of course, we have a lot of kids and a lot of programs, a lot of support uh, for our young people to, and in, in fact, encourage them sometimes aggressively. And we, I think a lot of families do this as well to make sure their kids do complete year 12 because if you don't, you know, as you know, there's nowhere to go unless you've got that. But so that's, and that's happening across the country, but not, like I say, not to the same extent in other parts of the world because we do, in the world, Australia, um, because we do have communities where, you know, there's like 90% um, unemployment and sometimes there are jobs um, in, in, the, in those communities, but people are not literate enough, like in a workshop, for instance, to be able to read uh, the occupational health and safety rules. They can't read the job sheet, so they can't work uh, because they have this lack of this lack of literacy. I'm involved in a uh, a literacy for for life program, which is a Cuban model, and I've been I read about this in the '60s about what was happening in Cuba. Always wanted to go there, still haven't got there. <laughs> um, and they go around the world, uh, the Cubans um, training, teaching people in their own language uh, to read and write, and so people are literate. And uh, we've been able to, we're a small group of and myself and others, um, we knew about this. So we, now we have Literacy for Life operating here modestly at the st- for the moment here in Australia, but it's a very successful adult literacy. For, and I am really passionate about that because, you, as you all know, we can't go anywhere unless you can done will read. In the past, in my day, people had to suspend who they were to get an education, well, that's not the case um, anymore. Uh, you don't, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to do that. But um, there's still not enough in my part of the world, anyhow, uh, for people to read and write. And if the parents can't read and write, they don't encourage the children. But with this program, when you teach the parents and the grandparents, um, they get onto their kids and make sure. And there are lovely stories from New South Wales where it's, main, it's mainly been run out only through lack of money, uh, and it is successful. We got a grant from ARC to empirically prove. Um, how it worked. It was difficult mm. finding a uh, a formula. Um, so there's still a lot of work that needs. How do you, how do you measure empirically the effects of a mother or a grandmother or a grandfather learning to read um, so they can help their kids at school? But there's been these amazing stories about, uh, like in the break when kids come back, especially the little ones, they got a pretty much 
revive, you know, get them back reading again. Whereas with the Aboriginal kids that we've heard we've heard about, they actually come to school ready to sort of sitting there, you know, all, you know, bright eyed and bushy tail, ready to go because their grandparent or somebody in that in that household has alert with been through the program and they get onto the kids, so they they make them read. 20 minutes, half an hour every day of the school holidays. Mind you, I don't know how they do that, uh, but they do. And we've had these lovely letters from teacher, classroom teachers saying the impact. They now know the, the parents of the kids at school. They're, 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 they're achieving. Uh, they're attentive. Uh, they're there. Um, one story after the other. Anyhow, I'm sorry, well, taking too we, much. No, we, we should be able to measure that through health outcomes, Pat. That's yes. one of the places we should see that is these social determinants of health. Yes. And we know that education is one of the strongest social determinants of health. Yes. But I just wonder about that relationship between this, these social determinants, so where mm. we live and how we live and what sort of education we can we can get access to and engage with, and the cultural determinants of health, so how important it is to acknowledge Indigenous heritage and identity um, as part of, of facilitating. And you were saying that you didn't that these days people aren't giving up their identity to engage. No. Uh, how, how can we? Is that an important part of? Yes, it is. Yep, um, it is. And um, it was sort of my generation, really. And just looking back, at, uh, it was very difficult for people that I know and still know today. Whereas, you know, when they went home um, or were achieving and everybody around them wasn't, it was a hard um, space, mm. um, hard space to fill. So, and it was, um, well, hurtful um, as well. And then, of course, wherever they were in the institution, they were the subject of all kinds of forms um, of racism, overt and covert, you know. So uh, it was a really, really uncomfortable, really difficult place for us. I, I think probably my generation, maybe there's a couple after me, a couple, at least one, mm-hmm. um, that it was not not comfortable to be educated. Yep. Uh, but nevertheless, there were there are families, and there always have been families that wanted our wanted everybody to be educated. I know this great story when I was doing a community education program. I was out at Kalkaringi, and I was sitting around um, with a group of people, and the old man told me this story. They said, "You know, my girl, we want we need to know everything about that kangaroo, where he eats, where he goes, what he drinks." how he travels, we need to know everything about that kangaroo. Now, we don't want to be that kangaroo, but we want to catch him and eat him. That was their description to me of education. We need to have um, have all these skills. We don't want to be like them, yep. but we need um, what they have so as we can survive. Yep. And I've never forgot that story. A really powerful analogy. But how much is the education system at the moment, and maybe you want to talk specifically to the Northern Territory, you know, where, where you're from, but more broadly across the country, how close are we in terms of the education system of being able to meet the needs of Indigenous children and their families and to provide the kind of knowledge that we all need in the contemporary world without losing the the traditional knowledge that families provide, the culture provides, the country provides? Issues of culture, I think they belong at home. However, when the kids go to school, look, they are a lot of our kids all over the country, the year 12, lots of kids at school. The schools um, are really trying. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, but... 
they don't see themselves at school. There's the history, you know, of of contact and what happened, the history of Australia, which in fact is not 200 and a few years plus. It's actually 65,000 years old and growing as we speak. The, the more and more sophisticated the tools and counting gets, that figure just keeps going. There's some people that, you know, say 80 to 100,000 years. But anyhow, be that as it may, that's still not really, there's not this integrated history that's taught to all kids um, at school. So our kids don't see themselves. I mean, I remember this terrible story. It was terrible in hindsight. I think I was in about grade three or four and the teacher was up the front and I, I really liked her and she was talking, talking about Captain Cook and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at her and I'm listening. She's saying how we came and there was no people here and I'm thinking, well, that's not true. And... And that realisation was quite profound because I, I remember sitting back in my chair, well, well, she's a liar. She's just telling me rubbish and I don't believe her anymore. So I just tuned out because you can't trust these people is what I learned. And that's a terrible lesson. What was I, 10? Yeah. You know, I thought that was a terror. In hindsight, I realised how horrible um, that lesson was that I learned because what I learned was that white people can't be trusted because they tell lies. So schools are really <laughs> a microcosm of all kinds of things. But getting back to the to the history, I think Australians really don't know much about themselves. They know very, very, very little about us. And there's this barrier. It seems to be like a psychological barrier. But they want to sort of block us out, make us invisible. We are here. We feel like I feel like you know when you're a kid and you want to join a game and you're the and you're jumping up and down with you know pick me, pick me. Well, that's how I sometimes feel like I'm waiting to join in the skipping rope game, but nobody will let me in. Um, so I think that still happens um, today, and we we wonder why why doesn't Australia want to accept acknowledge Respect. It's history. It's it's bloody, but it happened, you know, and all sorts of things happen, like in any societies all over the world. I don't know. I, for the life of me, even from this great distance that I am now, I cannot figure that out, why there is this reluctance. And it's excruciating, you know, when you get public figures like the Prime Minister. They don't – the history is so – it is not – I feel like saying – Ringing your mum and saying, Prime Minister, can you? Get, oh, can I get Henry Reynolds to come and give you a tutorial on Australian history, please? This truth of colonisation, I think, is a tremendously important part of reconciliation. How much difference do you think it makes to the health and well-being of our Indigenous population and maybe even the broader Australian population if we can start that? Oh, profound. Yeah. I mean, the health and level of sophistication or a civilised society is how it treats its not only its Indigenous folk but the most vulnerable um, in their communities like the young and the ageing. We haven't got a very good track record here in Australia. You know, us, aged people, my goodness, and young people, you know. So, so we, we, don't, we don't measure at all very well uh, using that kind of criteria. Australia's very bad. We've got, we got a lot of work to do in this country. There are a lot of challenges um, facing us all, and I'm hoping that young people will be a little bit educated or a bit more educated, sorry, about some of these issues and people talking more about them. There is a shift in the country, I, I, I think. There's a more openness to um, well, the kind of things that I'm saying 
whereas I think previously I would have been shut down by now, uh, and that has happened and did happen. Uh, but that's not the case anymore. So people are prepared to listen. Well, there's a growing sector uh, of Australia that's prepared to listen. I mean, the people who are opposed to the 26th of January, there's more and more um, Australians who are, if not out on the streets publicly supporting it, are at home watching and feeling very, very uncomfortable. Mm. And that's not a bad thing, I think. That's good. Yeah. Feeling uncomfortable is a really, really good place to start. Yeah. So do you think it is a discussion about the 26th of January would be a good place to start in terms of truth-telling and reconciliation? Is that one of the points where it's just shift? one. It's just, it's just one? It's just one. What we need to do, um, in my view, is change the narrative of the country mm-hmm. so as we understand uh, who we are. It's a wonderfully um, diverse really, really interesting uh, country that we have and lots of amazing people that live in it. But it's like, oh, no, 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 we can't go there. You know, we don't want to be too good. I don't know what it is. I don't know why we don't fully and completely celebrate and be proud of our history, the good bits, the bad bits. Truth-telling is why I think is really, really important um, because we don't tell you much we know all about your history. Uh, you don't know too much um, about about us, and there's good reasons for not revealing um, too much uh, because that doesn't that doesn't work. But the schools can do a lot better. Oh, you know, I've been going rabbiting on for decades about um, the curriculum. Me and me and a, f- a few others. I mean, we a lot of us worked in education who are very prominent now. People like Linda Burney, um, Ken White. Uh, Lots of people around, scattered around the country. We all worked in Aboriginal education years and years and years ago. And we were going on then about change the curricula. Teachers aren't trained to teach us and the curricula needs to, needs to be changed. And I'm sitting here I, I, 50 years later saying the same thing. Uh, so I don't, I don't understand what this block is and why there's this reluctance are people afraid of the truth, one might ask, you know, because it's, it's – I read this lovely article. I think it was um, – what's her name? Fanning. Q, not Q&A. Uh, Fanning, the journalist yes, from the journalist. Yep. She wrote this lovely yep. story about her parents. They have a farm and then she's got this really nice photo of these two Aboriginal women, a sort of matriarchal mm. figure sitting in a chair with a dog beside her and this younger woman throwing her head back laughing and she was intrigued, who are these women? And she sort of made it her journey to find out. And these women had been slaves, if you like, and been working with her family. And she actually tracked down the granddaughter of the smiling woman, young woman in the photograph. And there's this lovely photograph of her with that woman's family and what have you. So she's written this really nice story about the impact and, you know, that they actually were slaves to her family. But they were these sort of loving people. And it's a very, very nice story. And, there's a, and I read today too, just before I came, um, there's more and more people are, are doing this sort of like little family stories. And those sorts of stories, are, well, all stories are important in my view. Uh, but that just adds to this discussion about the – because the relationship – and no one writes about it. There's a PhD out there for quite a few people to talk about the relationship between uh, women, Aboriginal women and non-Aboriginal women because they were the only women there. You know, often it was just the station masters. Well, we're station people, by the way. Um, so the station uh, master's wife, she was there alone without her family and that there was a camp of Aboriginal women and mo- a lot of them worked 
as her or slave, my mother was one, um, a slave. But I wonder what that interaction was. Mm. You hear and see snippets of it, sometimes in a story or maybe a movie. Some director's brave enough to talk about this relationship. And um, there was – so there's – it's a really it, – no one's ever written about this. And I think there's lots of interesting work that could be done here. And there was sexual exploitation of Aboriginal women. Lots of families around the country um, have an Italian grandmother. <laughs> and, of course, she's not Italian. She's just, you know, she's the station master, probably their sister, you know, or their aunt. You still hear stories today. So, I mean – we, I think this is really, as a woman, I find this really interesting because they only had each other and they must have had relationships to sort of support mm. support each other. I know we looked after their children. My mother did that as well. We looked after their kids and uh, they were lots of loving relationships as well because the, the mother was often too busy or lots of violence as well. So the kids would sometimes often go to the camp so the, the Aboriginal woman would take them and um, a little bit happened like that with my mother and those two there's a lovely photo of her sitting on a chair and the two kids have got their arms um, on uh, mum's shoulder so she those two children grew up and mum well the daughter just disappeared because their mother was a bit of a tough taskmaster but she got to know those children when they when they grew up because they left Darwin and went to um, live in Perth uh, where they still are. So, you know, I reckon there's a whole world here that we haven't even lived, even peeped under. So anybody out there that wants to do something really interesting uh, and relevant and useful and amazing, um, there's a few PhDs there. That's the so human that, relationship, isn't it? Sorry. Um, it's the human rela- It's the humanising of relationships. And so much of what's happened with our colonial experience has been dehumanising and, yes. and yeah. you know, and trying to pretend yeah. uh, and, in, you know, the ingrained falsehood that there wasn't anyone here and then failing to acknowledge right. even when yeah. it's obvious. Yeah. I mean, there were the massacres. I mean, oh, that map that Lindell Ryan is doing and she's mapping all the massacres around the country. She, I think she's going up the East Coast and it's just full of dots. And that's a really... I think a really detailed work of scholarship because she, um, the process that she uses, she hears a story, someone tells her, then she checks it back. It's only when it's authenticated by some document or someone's written about it that it gets a dot on the map. So if she hears a story and she can't prop it up with some kind of um, evidence or in the library or letters in the family or whatever, whatever medium she uses, it doesn't make it um, on the, make it a dot on the map. Pat, so. there are so many issues here that we I, I, I want to unpack a bit further and, and discuss a little more um, and then to start to look for some of the solutions as we move forward. But I think now might be a good time to take a break and we will come back in just a moment to continue this conversation with Pat Anderson. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We are still here talking with Pat Anderson around a range of issues that we need to talk honestly about in Australia if we are to move forward and to think genuinely about healing and reconciliation and our identity as a nation. Pat, before the break, you were talking about the human relationships that were there if we look back in history and particularly relationships uh, between Indigenous and non-Indigenous women, between Indigenous women and children, um, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and the fact that we've lost these human relationships somewhere in our history. We don't talk about them. And this seems to be a good place to kind of move forward and, and think about the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I mean, that's a remarkable document. It calls for a recognition of sovereignty. It calls for the establishment of a First Nations voice in the Constitution. But to me, it speaks so powerfully to the need to heal um, and for non-Indigenous people to take guidance from First Nations people about how we do that. Pat, can you just speak to the Uluru Statement from the Heart? You were deeply involved in that process and share with us why it matters so much and what it offers us. There was a whole process um, that led up to it. was the work of the Referendum Council, which I um, co-chaired with Mark with Mark Liebler. It was a huge committee, 16 people. However, we went a ho- through a whole process talking to Aboriginal people um, across the country um, in groups of groups of 100, the local people selected, chose who would be at those meetings. We, ha- we had a formula. We wanted 60% um, traditional custodians and owners, um, 20% of organisations, and another 20% of people that didn't fit those criteria but were important or influential um, in their communities. Um, so that was a formula for every. And then that was, I went around, had um, uh, 12 and an information day here in Canberra. And each of those meetings um, chose them to send people to the convention, which was held um, at the complex there at Yalara, but hosted by the community there at uh, at Murujulu. And we had our opening ceremony and our closing one and a couple of functions as well out at um, at, out at Murujulu. It's a small community and there was, you know, over nearly, there was 300 people, so... To, it would be an imposition um, to try and house all those people at Murujulu. So we went into um, the sort of main tourist complex there with everything that we needed, you know, lights, cameras, bloody uh, uh, sound equipment and uh, air conditioning. Anyhow, um, that process came up with the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which I th- which is a profound document. So whatever happens, I think that is a real important, significant moment um, in the history that I've just um, spoken a little bit about because it's much bigger than that, of course. The Uluru Statement, we decided that we would um, we would not present it to the Prime Minister, as has all the other bark petitions. 
that nothing, nothing, nothing ever happened, except everybody, you know, having a sort of light bulb moment was a moment. Um, so we decided that we would gift this to the Australian people as a gift of healing and even of love, friendship, goodwill. Um, so we we gave that, and it's still out there as a gift. It needs for Australians to pick it up, accept the gift, and do what's required. What's required is to convince um, the Prime Minister and his government that the country needs to go to referendum to enshrine a voice in the Constitution. What happened in all of the discussion, and it's been my experience as well, every organisation pretty much that we've set up, NAC, NAEC, you know, everything by the a quick signature on a piece of paper by the current ministers being dismissed, including ATSIC, uh, which was huge, and all over the country they just, they, the government of the day, decided to, well, we're not going to do that anymore. Um, so that's been um, where I and people of my gen, we've spent our life. So it was decided that at the through every meeting that we held that we didn't want that to happen and that we needed to um, take our rightful place, our, our political place that we occupy in the country, that we don't have one. We, need, we, have, we are absolutely completely powerless. We are at the whim and of every minister that's ever been, every prime minister, every town, you know, what happens is we have no, we have absolutely no power. So this isn't a grab for power. It's, a, it's asking, it's explaining. Once again, we spend our lives explaining that we need to take our rightful place in our own country. That's why it's gifted because it's it's the people, it's the voters who can change the constitution, not the prime minister, not the government. However, they have to, of course, pass the legislation. So we have to, we Australians, all of those above 18, 18, this is the most, probably one of the most significant political things you're going to do in your life is to change the constitution. In fact, it's your turn. Every generation has had a run at it. We've been running at this since pretty much not long after the first fleet came here. The gains and achievements that we've made have been totally through our own activism and supporters along the way. There is no doubt about that. And we're asking you again, as we did in 1967, we asked you for your help and you gave it to us. And we're 50 years later or whatever, we're asking you again. And it's your turn and it's your time. But it's only through our activism that we have made, we have, you know, we've achieved what we have and made the gains that we have. Nothing has been given. There's lots of, if you listen to the language, you'll find lots of passive verbs around us. Lost our language, like it was a used tissue. We dropped it and forgot about it. You know, we gave. You know, what, you know. So if you listen to some, you're like, you'll hear all these passive verbs. In fact, the language around us in itself, or there's some more for linguists to do some work <laughs> on, just that language. Um, and look, that's, So it's a gift. It's a gift to the nation. Now, if, and our knowledge, you would think, forget all your prejudices, you would think that any folk who've lived on a continent for 65,000 years plus might have something to say about the care for the country, the environment. We know lots about the caring for country. 
But it's as if even that really now, now more than ever, that essential important language, we have to be once again jumping at the skipping rope. Ask us. We know. We know. You know. So uh, it's it's painful, you know, that fires last year. It was so painful, you know. This need not have happened, really. This need not have happened. But you wouldn't listen to us. You wouldn't hear us. You give us polite space, but you don't, in fact, hear us. So... The Uluru Statement is really, really important. It's a profound document. It will provide a narrative. The truth-telling and the agreement-making, will that in itself, I think, is, is dealing with the unfinished business. So the narrative for the country changes and that we all Australians, whatever their background, will be part of this nation. At the moment, that's not, that's not happening. It hasn't in my – I'm hoping it happens in my lifetime, but, you know – There'll be people after there'll be people after me, um, that's for sure, because that's the only way we've made any achievements. And, you know, to sound, we ain't going anywhere. This is our place. And like it or lump it, we're here to stay. We've been here a really, really long time. So this, the statement is really important. We have to convince the Prime Minister, first off, that there is a groundswell of support uh, for the Uluru Statement, not only this statement, but rather for the things that it says, voice, voice to Parliament, so we can have our say directly up to Parliament itself. Accompanying that is a, the, the Makarata Commission, which will oversee agreement making or treaties or however we decide to settle. And of course, going close together is um, the truth telling because that's essential. The sequence is really important, um, voice and then the other two to follow. The only constitutional change really is the voice but because we need a vehicle we need our own organization our own uh with organization which not more than organization it's a voice but it represents all the voices around the country but which has cultural authority as well so that's really important all the other organizations we've had uh, have been through an, an electoral process and I think we have to find other ways that are purely Australian, and we we've already um, talked about that. There'd be different different language groups, however people organise themselves. Not sort of much, you know, as you all probably know, the boundaries. You know, the state boundaries don't really apply to us. Uh, our country straddles, in in my case as well, straddles the Northern Territory and Queensland border. So those lines really don't mean too much to us. So the sorts of people who would make up the voice would be those people from diff- all the different language language groups. And there's we have to take into account the stolen generations um, people um, as well. So there is a whole other world way of deciding who the voice is because its voice has to have, in my view, and the view of the that whole process at the, that led up to the Uluru Statement from the Heart was that it would have cultural authority. And people would be speak for all of you know the smallest community, Kintor, Walgett, wherever they would have somebody speaking for them, at sitting at the table here in Canberra, representing them and their and their voice and their different ne- and their different needs because there's everyone has has different needs. There's a huge a huge diversity here, so we can we can we have the opportunity here to do something that's truly Australian, so that. What we're asking in the Uluru Statement from the heart, in my view, is profound on many. It doesn't matter which way you turn it. Uh, it has a, could have a profound impact on the country and the future of the country. What kind of 
what are our values? Who are we? Who? What does it mean to be an Australian in the 21st, 22nd century? What are our values? What do we stand for? I don't think we know. We can fix this, but it's going to require a lot of fortitude and, dare I say it, a level of um, maturity and sophistication. But the task is ours. It's our turn, all of those above 18. But I think it's remarkable hearing you talk this way about the Uluru Statement and it always seems to me that in the kind of public discussions around Australia's First Nations people, there's this sense of hand-wringing and what do we do? Oh, nothing works, what do we do? Here we have the answer. It's Mm. actually not too hard. It's a plan. Mm. It's a plan that can be enacted. Um, And so the way forward is actually crystal clear. <laughs> you know, we follow these steps, but we need to listen. It's a guide. It, it, it's, it's telling the Australian public and our, our government, this is what we need to do. And this is how you do it. It's not just an idea. It's a, it, it's a, it's a construct. It's a, it's a, it's a tangible, it's a, it's a guide with all, all the earmarks there on, on what, what one needs to do. We just have to work out the detail. You know, there's all this sort of lot of confusion around it, but some people say, "Oh, you know, the voice, you know, didn't have any, didn't tell us what the voice is going to look like." Well, you can't put all that in the constitution. <laughs> the voice would be designed, um, you know, but and in legislation, and you'd, we don't want it locked into the constitution because we might want to change it, you know, because we don't, we don't, we haven't done this before. So, of course, the design of the voice and what it would look like would be by after discussion would be. Um, in legislation. So we can t- change it and say, well, that didn't work. It was a good idea, but we need to change it. So, of course, how can you write all of that into the co- – it just needs a couple of en- enabling sentences, really. Mm. And then the rest is done um, in another process um, with us and and the government of the day and it be done by um, legislation. So it, it it's really simple. I was saying too hard because anything to do with anything to do with blackfellas, people say, "Oh, that's really hard," you know. And they don't all agree, and they're always fighting, and you know, and they're this, they're too that, or too something else, you know. You know, come on, get over it. That's that, that's not acceptable anymore. Uh, and I think, you know, I think we can do. We Australian think can do better than that. We can do better than that. And now's the time to show who we truly are and where our heart is. And to accept and be comfortable in this beautiful country of ours. We've got to look after it. Look, the Barrier Reef, you know, what, what's happened to that? And it's just, it's like hurts your soul to think about it. And watching, you know, the fires with all the animals and people and the tr- insects and trees exploding. You think, oh, my God, Mother Nature, she is really pissed off, really pissed off. There is a... There is a, a relationship between all of these things, inanimate and, and the animate w- world are all connected. We are connected to the trees and the animals and everything that's on, you know, in our country. And it's a beautiful country. There's a reluctance even to, I think, to admit that by some, you know. Uh, the deserts and everything, it's, it's amazing. It's so dramatic. It's wonderful. But Australians seem to, I don't know, cringe at the thought of even talking about loving one's country. Come on, come on. We, we have to, we have to do. I think we can, but we have to do a whole lot better. And there's some good things to do. Lots of, lots of really good work to do. You know, we have to really get involved in climate change because <laughs> what did David Attenborough say? We've got, we do have time um, to fix the planet, but we should have started last Tuesday. Uh, I mean, 
<laughs> now that's what kind of, that's really um, what he's saying, and we've got a lot of work to do in this country, you know, and we're sort of isolated, which might be good in the few years to come, but we've got to fix we got to fix country. We have to love it. We have to respect it. It's not to be raped and looted and dug up at every opportunity because there's something there that we desperately want. Thinking has to change. There has to be a much more closer relationship between us and the inanimate world in this country. And, then, and you have people who know about that because we've been here, as I said, a really, 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 really long time. There's no other country in the world that has uh, access to a, uh, the oldest surviving um, culture in the world. Is that not to celebrate? Isn't that an extraordinary opportunity for Australia to to embrace reconciliation, to to in, engage in detailed truth telling, and to celebrate Indigenous vision for the future, a recognition of the relationship with country, a recognition of First Nations knowledge frameworks? It's the most extraordinary framework, and I think in Australia we did begin to appreciate a little bit through the bushfire experience and the discussions that have come on through cultural burning, but as you've just shown so nicely and so well for us, uh, that's the tip of the iceberg. How, how, how would you, you, you're calling, it's a call to arms, I think, for all yeah, Australians is. over 18. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and we've done it before. Yep. I, re- I just remember the other day we, when uh, the biggest, one of the most successful public campaigns was the, um, and you might remember too, to stop the, the Franklin Dam mm. in Tasmania and what people did at the, as well as, you know, everything, all the actions that they took across the country. There was an election on and what they got the Australian public to do was to vote, but right across their ballot paper, no dams. And there were so many of these ballot papers with no dams. The Australian Electoral Office, I think, made the decision themselves to count them. And they actually counted all of those votes so they could see how many Australians were against the, um, the Franklin Dam. So that's a, that's the kind of public campaign, and we we can't do it. We don't have the numbers. We can't do it um, without you. It truly is a gift, but you have to pick the gift up. So far, um, that has we're getting a lot of support. I have to say from all kinds of the corporate sector and and others, individuals as well. But you know, changing the constitution, as you'll know, it's really really difficult um, in this in this country. So there's a lot of work that needs to be doing, and, and people can start. I mean. You know, write to your local member, ring him up, send him an email. It doesn't have to be, you know, war and peace. It can just be a few lines. You know, tell the Prime Minister we um, we support the Uluru Statement and he needs to ins- a voice enshrined in the, uh, in the Constitution and we need to do it now. And we support it. You know, what, three sentences, four sentences, send him an email. Your local member your federal member, even your local council, some of your larger organisations like, you know, the Lions Club um, and they – because they're really quite powerful actually, <laughs> you know. So they could – they can lobby. We have So we have lots of organisations as well but we really need this to be um, a people's movement mm. and that's the only way that we are going to get real change in this country because we can't just leave it to Parliament House. It's our house. The House of Representatives is the people's house. That's our house. Don't forget that. So we we can we we we're responsible for what happens um, in this country by the people that we uh, elect to go and um, speak for us. So if they're not doing what we want, we all know what to do next time. But this is something a little bit extra special 
this is truly, I think, once in a lifetime. It's this generation's um, turn, and uh, I think we we know we're, there's more access to more information. But even just doing those simple things. So if they start getting flooded, they, the politicians of all persuasions and um, all levels, the levels of government, um, both local and federal, if they start getting flooded or people talking them in, you know, chopping them in the street. Um, and when they do that sort of kissing baby sorts of things that they do or kissing sheep or whatever they do as they go around, um, people can um, talk to them, tell them, I support this. So that's, but that's the only way, that's the only way that um, we can win this is if you, if the Australian people convince the Prime Minister that there is a groundswell of support. They aren't going to do it. But we often talk in um, public policy theory and public policy analysis around policy windows and when you know, politics and the public discourse and the evidence converge to open a policy window. And I think what you've described here is this remarkable opportunity where we don't have the political will, at least from government, but we do have that policy window ajar. And there is an opportunity to bring about change. And the way you've described this is the way in which all Australians can contribute to pushing that policy window open mm. um, and convincing policymakers or convincing government in this case that it is time for a change. Yeah, it is. It's 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 way past time. But I think, you know, like I, there is a shift. Uh, but we need more than a shift. We actually need a whole um, movement. But... You know, we've done it before. We did it in 67 and helped us, you know, which um, we have to do it again. Uh, and, you know, not only us at risk here, it's it's our continent. Mm. It's our it's our land, our, our seas, um, our trees, our flora, our fauna, everything. I mean, <laughs> we have no water in this country. So what, what's the government doing about um, water, for instance? Uh, I mean, if every everything you touch needs some attention, needs doing, needs dealing with, and we're really smart, you know. Australians we, globally, we punch. A, I hate using this expression, but <laughs> we punch way above our weight. Um, so we we do have, uh, and, and we're the leader in the science, uh, medical technology. Uh, look at the wonderful work we did here with COVID, you know, because we have this amount. It's got lots of holes in it, but we have a really, really good public health system. There is no doubt about that. But also the public is is, a, is aware and knows uh, a, a good public health system and we follow the messages as Australians did because they trust that we have a really good system here and we do, despite, you know, we always need sort of fixing and what have you. But watching that, how other countries reacted and how we did, I think, thank God we've got a public health system um, that works. And uh, and also, um, the government of the day and the ministers listened listened to the experts, and the experts were the public health um, physicians and all of the research and their and their networks as well. So um, that's what saved us. So, uh, some <laughs> lots of good things that we've done in the world. We've just got better things to do now. Well, more more things to do, which are going to affect um, the wealth, the emotional and social and well being of the nation. And all of us who live on it, including the animals and the seas and everything in the sea. 
Pat, I, I think we need to draw this conversation to a close, but there is so much more to talk about that we will invite you back so we can continue this conversation. Um, I think so often, just speaking for myself, when we start to begin about how we engage in these conversations, how we engage in truth-telling, how we think about healing this nation in a way that is just to our First Nations people. It becomes really difficult and it becomes really painful. I'm coming away from this conversation with an incredible sense of optimism. You have just told us what we need to do. Mm. You have directed our policymakers and our political leaders to what action they need to take. And you have given us all as Australians um, the, the, the guidance of where we need to go now. So listeners, it falls to us to act. And I hope that everyone that listens to this podcast can reflect on the pain that you talked about, Pat, and the need for us to tell truth about that pain, mm. but also to take away the sense of optimism that I feel um, and the responsibility that we have to actually move forward. So, Pat Anderson, thank you so much. It has been an extraordinary privilege to talk to you. Oh, thank you, Sharon and Anna Greta. It's, uh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Pat. Great to have you with us. Sharon, that was the most extraordinary conversation with Pat Anderson. I, I feel deeply privileged uh, that she joined us today and share with us even a small amount of the knowledge that she's gained uh, through her long career here in Australia. And I think it gives us a tremendous amount of insight into the, the uh, need for truth-telling and reconciliation. And I was so deeply inspired by her last statements about a vision for Australia's future and how this process of, of a voice, the process of reconciliation, the pro process of truth-telling and celebration of our Indigenous heritage gives Australia the, the most extraordinary future. What were your thoughts? Yeah, it was a remarkable conversation, wasn't it, Anna Greta? It's, and there were so many points along the way where I would have liked to have three or four hours to just pick up on that one point and learn more um, from, from Pat's extraordinary knowledge. I guess, the, as, I, as I said to her at the end, I come away from this with a sense of pain that I think is almost impossible not to have when, as a non-Indigenous Australian, we think genuinely about the history of this country over the last 200 and a little bit years. But I also have this sense of optimism that if we just listen and take our cues from people like Pat, and there are so many First Nations people like Pat that can share their knowledge and that want to share their knowledge, then I think we've got a pathway forward. And a couple of things that, that really struck me, when she described the Uluru Statement as a gift, what an amazing way of describing it. What an act of generosity. And what kind of soul do we have as a country if we refuse the gift? A gift of healing and love was the words Absolutely. that she used. And it is, it's an extraordinary frame for us to look at that document. Um, and the concept that we don't embrace that as a nation uh, really needs to be deeply considered and discussed. I, yeah. I think I think her uh, her call to arms uh, is should be well heeded. I think we should all be engaging very much in this discussion. I um, think too. She talked, Anna Greta, about the values that underpin it, mm. um, and they are values that we like to think are values of this country around fairness, around egalitarianism. Um, I think we should think more about values of compassion and caring. Um, but all of these things align and her vision of a future for Australia that is extraordinary 
if we can respect the true history of this country. So, you know, we've got this pathway forward. We, we need to take it. Mm, absolutely. Now, I think for, for, for you and I, as we w- work our way through the Policy Forum pod series this year, uh, we will find ourselves regularly reflecting on the conversations we've had so far with our Indigenous friends and colleagues, and I'm sure there'll be many more of these conversations to come. I just want to take this chance to to remind listeners to reach out to us. We're very interested to hear what you think of the discussions. And uh, you can find us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum. Uh, and so we're quite active in the Twitter sphere in terms of new episodes that are coming out both for Policy Forum Pod and for our sister podcasts of Democracy Sausage and the National Security Podcast. You can contact us directly at the podcast at policyforum.net. And we have an active Facebook group, uh, which is a great space to engage in active discussion around what we've been talking about uh, and to give us some suggestions on how we might do better. So if you go to Facebook and type in Policy, Policy Forum Pod, you'll find our group and we'd be very, very keen to welcome you. Leave us a review. We'd like to hear what your thoughts are on our podcast and we'd love to have as many subscribers as possible. Through. So do that through your favourite podcast platform, Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your particular podcasts from. Next week, we will be back again with another episode, and I'm very much hoping we can continue this conversation around Indigenous wellbeing for a little bit longer. Uh, And so I might leave us with that little tantalising bite. Sharon, have we got any more details on next week? I think we will just leave people with the promise of another amazing conversation. And there is so much more to say about these issues. I think you're right, Anna Greta, We'll, we'll talk specifically about these issues over the next couple of weeks. But we'll be we'll be going back to these conversations that are grounded in Indigenous knowledge for the rest of the year, I think. Yeah, absolutely. We're looking forward to it. I'll say goodbye for now, Sharon. See you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.